0: Number one, good to be with you. Thanks, Hal, thanks Beth. Good to be back again, continuing this, this masterclass on M&A. So as Davis mentioned, it's been a pretty busy last 120 days. We've closed four transactions over that period. And that included this the sale of Wilson Logistics Western Division to Ashley Furniture, um, private carrier. It also included the, the sale of a, a drainage company on the West Coast, of t- uh, less than 20 million in revenue. Um, also included Abenaki Carriers, which, which sold to Brownberry Transportation. And also just recently, the announcement last week, a C2 Logistics, uh, which we sold to TA Services. So a lot of activity, but also within that same window, there's been several occurrences where there was an owner, either a friend or a client who desired to sell, but was not able to exit um, on their timeline on their terms. And that's why we're here. Uh, there's, there's tremendous activity going on in the market. And this industry is not like other industries. That's kind of why we exist. And so our hope today is to kind of unpack uh, some of the 16 most common reasons why trucking businesses don't sell. And I think through that, back to to Davis's comment, I think that this is going to be an empowering session that puts you in control to control the things that you can actually control. While also becoming much more of the things that can have influence over the timing of a future exit. And just just by being mindful of that, we feel like that's going to empower you to make good decisions uh, and protect all that you've built through your trucking company. So with that stage being set, we're going to jump into reason number one, your trucking business won't sell. So reason number one, stagnation. it's very simple. We say this a lot, especially to our clients and prospective clients, which is that you need a compelling growth strategy to capture the imagination of a buyer. So to kind of frame this, recently we were working with two different companies that were pretty much identical. They're both around $72 million in annual revenue with adjusted EBITDA at about $14 million on that revenue stream. The difference was, one basically had flat performance over the previous four years, Whereas one had gotten to this place recently, had been growing about 20% year over year. So the question is, and you can check what your response would be if you want, what was more compelling? What was more interesting to the buyer? Well, from a value standpoint, it's very clear. When people are valuing businesses, they're looking at what's the opportunity for return on investment and what's the lowest risk. Well, if they're coming in at a valuation point for something that's growing 20% year over year, there's much more cushion in terms of what, if, you know, if what could go wrong. So if they're trying to put an investment, they're kind of hedging against this trend of growth and they're also understanding that if I if whatever I pay now, I'm probably going to double or triple that just in a matter of years based on what this current growth track looks like. So in in that situation, you're either getting discounted or you're getting passed on something else that matches like the description that I just described. So that's the number one reason. If you want to sell at on your terms, you need to be growing. And that's the takeaway. So We're gonna move over, Davis, tell us about the reason number two.
1: Yeah, number two, we have owner dependence here. And so uh, our our bullet points here, greater owner dependence equals greater risk, greater risk equals discounted valuation. And uh, this is one of those things that I will say is is extremely common in this industry um, because as as a lot of you have experienced, but uh, if not, you can imagine it's hard to scale a company in this industry without having some level of owner dependence uh, to get it off the ground. Uh, A lot of times owners have to wear a lot of hats from being the head of you know safety to recruiting to sales to maintenance just to keep everything on tracks in the beginning but as the business begins to scale to whatever extent owners can decrease the dependence on them to empower the the people around them uh, to actually take on greater responsibility and to kind of work themselves out of a job to an extent. That decreased the amount of risk that a buyer is going to have to take on in actually being able to purchase that business and transition it over time. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll make a little good news here. I'll give you a little, a little challenge if you're the owner of a business. Uh, if you're familiar with the proverbial business book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they provide the principle of pay yourself first. I'm giving you full permission to go buy that fishing boat, get the golf club membership, whatever it is that you like to do that you don't have enough time to do right now. I'm saying go invest in it right now, just so that you are now pressured to get yourself out of the office to go enjoy that thing. And in turn, empower the people around you to give you the opportunity to go do those things because that will pay itself forward once uh, you actually get to the table and look to transition the business uh, because that is going to, again, it's going to provide a a greater valuation there. We had a client a few years back that had about $20 million in revenue. He had made a deal with a couple of his key managers, CFO, general manager, to uh, give them a bonus bonus. At the time that the company sold, and an additional bonus uh, stay-on bonus for you know them sticking around post transaction, and so what that did was empowered them to you know really take ownership in the business, and they did a great job of growing the business once they were kind of given the reins. And this owner ended up spending a lot of time as that business grew. He was taking routine trips down to South America to uh, race dune buggies which would not be for me, but it is for some people. And I can imagine he had a great time with that. So what that produced and when it came time to sell was we were able to produce 13 offers from eight different buyers in 30 days for that business owner because every buyer that looked at the deal, the risk associated with it was substantially less than what they were looking at elsewhere. They knew that these um, you know, key managers were going to be valuable assets for them and that they were bought into transitioning the business well and that uh, ultimately produced a, a greater opportunity for them uh, at the closing table. So moving into number three here, uh, inconvenience. I think we all have to deal with some level of inconvenience in life, but um, if you can imagine if you're a buyer looking at multiple deals, the more inconvenient the deal is going to be to get the deal done, then the less time you're probably going to spend considering it and the less time you spend considering it, probably going to spend less time valuing it. And so we had a, uh, I guess a whole story here. We had a, a guy that came to us this past year. He came to us and said, hey, I had someone reach out to give me an offer about a year ago and at the time I, I was Really busy. Uh, you know, I was kind of in the weeds on a lot of stuff on, on the work front. I just didn't have time to respond. Would you guys mind kind of on my behalf engaging that person and, and just seeing if, if, if they'd be willing to honor that offer? And so, so of course, reached out to that buyer and said, Are you still interested in this? And they said, Oh, well, yeah, we're, we're, we're still interested, but going to be honest, we've kind of already got our hands full with another deal right now. And so it's kind of accomplishing a lot of what we wanted to accomplish with seller you're talking about. Uh, we'd still be willing to. Make an offer, but they threw out the number and it was about $6 million less. So the seller's lack of preparedness to actually uh, be able to engage the buyer when the offer he ultimately wanted was presented to him cost him about $6 million in this circumstance. And so um, the ability to prepare yourself for uh, an offer at any given time, whether you're trying to get out of the business now or 20 years from now, there's probably a number that would accomplish that. And and having yourself and your team ready to respond to those offers is a a great way to be able to ensure that you're not inconveniencing the buyer and making this a drawn out process where they can't get access to information. They can't move the the needle meaningfully. Uh, Being able to have speed in response is a a great way to offset inconvenience. Uh, Spencer, we'll pass it back to you for number four here.
0: Yeah, if you got eyes on that last slide, there, they're just to that end, uh, we're not going to dive in there now. But we did include a link to um, a recent white paper, which is a four-step guide to how to respond to an unsolicited offer, and I really encourage you to to jump in there. On a side note, I do remember that Davis, and um, there was also a personal thing going on that was creating that inconvenience. If it was a wedding for his daughter that he had gotten tied up on, and so we said, we I, I hope it was special because that might have been the most expensive wedding of all time. So. <laughs> so, so. So uh, good dad doing the right things, but I think if you do that four step guide, I think that you'll figure out that responding, engaging doesn't have to be as burdensome as you might think it is. So dive in there, take care of that. Reason number four, incompatible driver base. Now we, Davis and I, what, a few times or more a week, somebody will tell us if I could increase my business by 40% if I had drivers one, trucks two. The deal is, it, it's but you know, it's not just about having drivers to grow business. And, and to be able to sell a business, to be able to make those available, it's about having the right drivers. And, and I can remember being on a panel not that long ago with some very experienced acquirers, one, a very large international acquirer in this, in, in this industry. And the conversation came up about like, you know, well, how, you tell us about a time where you passed on a deal. And why? Well, and he talked about, well, there was this deal. It had about 400 drivers. It was a, a decent sized transaction. We were excited about it. Uh, we were aligned as far as the economic deal points. And we got into diligence. And it turns out that you know one of the main motivators was to be able to get this capacity through drivers. And it turns out that of the 400, the buyer discovered that his team had terminated 25% of those over the previous 18 months. So he's like, no, it, this is not accretive to me i don't because uh, i'm not going to be able to successfully transfer these drivers over to my business so i'm not going to experience that revenue it's going to create some problems so that's what the emphasis the reason why it won't sell is because you don't have this you don't have drivers that will successfully transfer over to the buyer so in terms of meeting those safety standards and making sure that you know, do they have tenure or are they jumping around all the time those things matter especially in this environment when you have 30 to 40 percent uh, driver pay increases that are, are coming pretty common across the industry. So got it's not just about having drivers. You got to have compatible drivers that are transferable. That takes us to reason number five. Davis, hit us with it.
1: All right. Old equipment. I think we can all agree that truck in the background there is super cool. But if that's part of your fleet right now, well, we need to talk. So we need to, we need to make some some adjustments. <laughs> um, in, in this environment, the old equipment is, is obviously uh, in a, a unique circumstance. You know, the intermodal drainage world, people traditionally operate older equipment than you would in truckload over the road type of operation. But even with that being the case, in this current equipment environment, your equipment probably looks a lot more expensive right now if you own it than it did uh, a couple years ago and while that can be great to look at and to consider when you're thinking about selling there's also a lot of challenges that come with having older equipment and the capex requirements that a buyer would then have as, as a result of making an acquisition and not only that the the finding parts right now is, is a large issue as well and we'll, i'll kind of get into that here in our next slide but you know if, if you are a buyer and you're looking at two businesses with roughly $30 million in revenue. They have similar EBITDA, but one has a older fleet than the other. You know, how do you choose? And you're, you're probably going to go with that newer fleet every time. And so being able to have a newer fleet that, you know, is going to give a buyer more confidence they're not going to have to you know, make continued investments in the, the maintenance of that fleet going forward, but also in this environment that they're going to have some assurance they don't have to, you know, if, if they need to delay some sort of replacement schedule there, uh, that they're not gonna be in, in, in hot water, uh, that, that's gonna give you an advantage um, over other companies for sure. Uh, kind of hand in hand that number six here.
0: Hey Davis, can you tell that story about the recent transaction when we got due diligence and they had the requirement uh, about the 500,000 mile limit as far as the, the, the trucks that they would allow in their fleet and how that affected the, the valuation and due diligence? I know that it was going to require a lot of the
1: equipment to be turned over immediately. And in, in, in this environment, the ability to actually allocate the additional power units to replace that was pretty unrealistic. And so had a, a pretty drastic impact on, on, on the deal there.
0: Yeah. I think what the math around it was about a price reduction of $3 million. And it was because of the lack of confidence that they could in this environment, replace that equipment on time as they would in a, in a different environment. So it, it had a material effect on the valuation because of what we're experiencing right now. Definitely,
1: definitely. Um, number six here: we have incompatible equipment or, and uh, slash maintenance. And a, a great example of, of how this came to play is we have a friend in the industry sold business a few few years ago, and as she prepared to sell her her company, she looked around at. Uh, some of the people that she thought would be most likely to purchase her business. And uh, she took note of the equipment they ran and got some information on kind of their maintenance schedules. And she just went ahead and implemented that into her business because she knew that uh, when the time came for her to actually sell the business, uh, when she brought the opportunity to these buyers, the fact that they had the same equipment in place and that it was a current maintenance schedule that reflected what they did internally, it was going to give her a much better opportunity to close, and that's exactly what happened. She got to sell with the company that she'd kind of long identified as you know the, the candidate that she wanted, and you know as, as a buyer, if you're looking at a fleet that has uh, all of one type of tractor, but you operate another, and you're looking at another opportunity that maybe is a little more expensive, but it's all consistent with the current equipment you're operating and the inventory that you have for for parts, then you know, it's probably a no-brainer that that's probably an easier acquisition for you to take. And as we mentioned earlier with the convenience inconvenience being an issue, that is a potential inconvenience. Now, obviously, there's a lot of different companies out there using a lot of different equipment. And so it's not that most of the time a, a certain type of vehicle is going to be a deal breaker, that it's going to make it to where you can't actually exit your business. But what it's going to do is it's going to limit your buyer pool. And if there's potentially other problems uh, on this list that are true. That's just one more reason for that buyer to potentially pass. And what we're trying to do is make it hard for them to find reasons to pass. So with that in mind, I'll jump over to number seven here and pass it by Spencer. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and just to put some numbers around that, what I hope that you're seeing, what Davis just said is that the, the more boxes that we can check here is what's effectively happening is that the value of your business should be going up and the concentration of cash, the quality of the deal structure should be improving with each box that we're, that we're addressing through this. In that last situation, the result was approximately $100 million deal that was effectively all cash. And so it wasn't just because of that issue. She took care of a lot of these other things, but that wasn't a small issue for, for that particular buyer, just a little color. So the seller's valuation not based on facts. and I And, and I think that this is, and the reality is that the, the, the work that takes place in this industry is very difficult. It's one of the most demanding industries uh, in the world. So when the, the owner of a great company receives an unsolicited offer and they like, hey, you know, and, and this is a common conversation that is shared with me. A buddy of mine, he's an industry friend. He comes to me and says, I've always admired your business. I think you have a great reputation. If you ever want to sell and if you want to sell right now, I'd love to work something out. Do you have a number in mind? And it's just like, uh, you, know, you don't know what to do because the person's been so busy building value and doing the certain things that there hasn't been a whole lot of consideration about what am I going to say when I'm inevitably asked this question? So th- there's typically one of two responses. One is, and this is them sharing this with me, which is like, hey, I don't know what to say. I'm, I think I'm just going to just pass just because I don't want to embarrass myself by saying something that sounds unintelligent or uninformed. So they don't say anything. They don't engage and they just walk away the other camp who's asked the same question, they might do something where I'm just gonna say something so outlandish that if accepted, I'll know that I'll be content with that. Either way, neither are rooted in facts, it's just not helpful. And so when that takes place, like there's a lot of deals that probably could get done. Well-intentioned buyers that wanna pay a fair price that just like, there's just no starting place to to work from. So if we we move to the next slide, you know, what I think this is really important, like, so this is an analysis. This is kind of like a little software that we use just to help provide guidance around how we can get deals done and how we can structure deals and how buyers can positive cash flow deals. So oftentimes we'll have a seller who says, this is what I want. This is what I need. And well, you know, like, well, if you want to get a deal done, we think here's some of the parameters that would allow us to do this And we're basing that on market trends, but we're also basing on you know an expected capacity to borrow uh, from from a from a buyer. And so when we're able to look at hey you know before we go make an offer before we counter this, here's kind of where we're going to run into some issues as far as negative cash flow from a deal, while also producing an acceptable return on equity that the buyer puts into the deal. And so when we kind of have like these bright lights flashing as you see on this, on this slide right here, it just helps us kind of pump the brakes and to say, hey, I think this guy's going to pay an aggressive price. I'm going to respond as aggressively as I can without scaring him away. These are the types of instruments that allow you to push as far as you can and kind of strike that balance. And so I think that's the whole deal. The reason why they don't sell is because they're not equipped to respond in an informed way. And that's something that you can easily address and, and move on to the next deal. So the next thing that I would talk about is, is uh, reason number eight, which is seller rigid with the sale. And so a lot of times this just, again, comes from lack of experience or, or just having some inexperienced advisors in your circle, which is, which is not necessarily helpful. So sometimes we'll come and we'll have a deal and, and buyer and seller like the, the, the deal points. They like one another. And then someone within the seller's advisory circle will say like, well, hey, you shouldn't do it unless it's a, it's a stock sale, because that's, you know, that's where, that's what otherwise you're going to get killed in taxes. And so this is what I would say about that. Number one, that's not true. Number two, that's not how deals are done. You either get the, 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 favorable business valuation, or you get the favorable tax treatment. You typically don't get both. And so Knowing that, there's just so many ways to skin that cat. So if you go in with a mindset that it has to be this way, it's just counterproductive. Buyers have needs, seller has needs. There's a variety of different things that can be done from a deal structuring and a tax strategy standpoint that can allow everybody to address their respective goals in a way that makes sense. So just keep an O in mind, don't take any hard absolute positions and there's a great chance that this won't affect you. So moving on to number nine, Mr. Davis, unreliable record keeping. Talk to us, sir.
1: And if they would have let me put an office uh, image on every one of these slides, I would have, but <laughs> um, I did manage to get one in here. So, you know, with unreliable record keeping, if bad records equal discounted price, unforced errors, errors equal unacceptable. And so uh, this is the world that I live in a lot on the front end of our deals. I spend a lot of time, um, even going back to some of the, the valuation uh, conversations Spencer just ha- uh, ha- mentioned, uh, I have a lot of those conversations on our behalf. Uh, as people come to us and say, hey, I'm considering a sale, I guess I'll, I'll give an offer right now. If, if you are ever just wondering high-level valuation type of, of numbers, I'd be happy to just jump on a quick call and give you a, kind of a, a quick understanding of what we would expect. Um, but one of the first things we're going to do is ask for some financials. And I can quickly kind of tell if there's going to be red flags once we, we see some financials and the amount of detail that's involved there. Uh, as again, as we're trying to give buyers confidence, we're trying to reduce risk as much as possible. If we have unreliable records, then all that's going to do is it's going to decrease the buyer's confidence that uh, what they're buying is truly what they're buying. And so we had a a deal recently that should have died. Um, you know, the, the buyer lost about $3 million in total consideration from the buyer because they wouldn't recognize a portion of the EBITDA uh, after due diligence. They just didn't trust it. And it was one of those things that it was... Kind of narrative form it wasn't you know we couldn't just point firmly to the books and, and justify this and as a result instead of getting that at cash at close it turned into something where they said okay we'll potentially give that to you and, and but it's going to have to be through an earnout. and so our client was still able to capture that which which is great but the risk there was greater on them you know they weren't for some reason something unforeseeable had happened in um, that, are now a period they have the potential to lose out on three million dollars that had they just probably kept their books better in a in a way that is completely possible. Anyone can is is capable of keeping clean records uh, and, and producing detailed financials. Had they done that previously, then they wouldn't have had themselves in that position. And so that's a good end of that story. There, there's other stories where we routinely have people which say, "Hey, like we're going to have to." Send you to someone to, to kind of get your books in shape, and it's probably going to take a, a year before you're actually in a position where you can produce financials that uh, are going to satisfy a buyer's request. And so, if you are familiar with the, the guys at Moss Adams or, or Sapper Miller, do a lot of work with them. They're, they're specialized in, in uh, trucking logistics, uh, and you know are great CPAs. Yeah, you know, they, they'd be great people, resources to reach out to to have a conversation if you could use a little help on the record keeping front.
0: And I was just going to add, Dave, so I would add Clifton and Allen to that list uh, yep. as well. And just, just to quote, uh, Davis and I did a boot camp a while back about just getting your financial house in order. It was a whole separate webinar about doing this. And some, some a couple things, like if you can't produce monthly financials, like every month with by the 15th of the following month, like... If, you're, if your people aren't doing that for you, fire them right now. Like they have to be able to do that. Like other, otherwise, like you're never going to get on the dance floor. And the thing that I want you to consider is that like in this environment where people can't really grow without drivers and they can't really grow without trucks, acquisitions is becoming it's becoming such an active market. You have to understand that you're like you're not just being evaluated by yourself. The people that are most capable, most interested in acquiring your business and paying the most money for it are probably looking at three to four deals at any given time or more. So if you can't check this first box right out the gate within the first 48 hours, like it just becomes very easy to pass on your deal. So don't be that person. Satisfy those things and give your business the full opportunity to be valued the way that it should be. That's it. Which well, brings us okay. to reason number 10, sir. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Uh, minus an office reference here, but important nonetheless, customer concentration uh, versus no account. So, I guess what we could say here is customer concentration and no direct shipper relationships. So uh, too much revenue in one account equals high risk, no real accounts equals low buying interest. So routinely, again, this is something we we encounter a lot and uh, most businesses in order to scale uh, to some sizable amount have to have some level of customer concentration to get them there. Uh, there's exceptions to that rule, but, and so understand completely why that happens, uh, how you want to maintain you know, good rapport with your large customers. As they ask for more, you want to be able to deliver because they account for a large part of your revenue. But in terms of mitigating risk, if for some reason you know, there was to be a major change up in that customer and maybe they got acquired by someone and they had different shipper relationships or whatever that is, uh, the risk to a buyer is severe. And so to the extent that we can decrease the amount of of concentration across uh, our top customers, the, the more that's going to increase the buyers' confidence, decrease their risk, and increase the value associated with that. Again, there are exceptions to every rule. Uh, you know, deals do get done with high customer concentrations, but what it does is it just shrinks your buyer pool. It shrinks the amount of people they're going to be able to get comfortable with it, and potentially it's just one more box that they have to check that um, you know allows them to pass on the deal. So. In, in the same vein, you know, if, if you are receiving all your freight off of load boards um, or, um, you know, your main main customers are, are 3PLs that are 100% relate to the spot market, uh, on one hand, you're probably having a great year. Um, you've probably had a great couple of years and uh, there's a lot of value to that. But at the same time, in, in a, a buyer, it's tough for them to value that. It's tough for them to say that, you know, there's any long-term customer uh, relationships there that they can kind of use to give confidence that uh, those customers are being served well and that they're not likely to go seek a business elsewhere um, or even better if there was customer contracts in place. But it's hard to value a spot market account or spot market freight or offload boards, anything like that, because who's to say what that freight's going to be worth tomorrow? Uh, Maybe you have the same amount of loads, but as the spot market moves, a buyer can't Look into their crystal ball and say, hey, for the next six months, this is what spot market is going to do versus, you know, first 18 months. And so uh, a lot of times buyers just, you know, are not going to be willing to touch that um, freight. And if they do, they're going to severely discount it, uh, that that portion of your revenue. So the extent that you can decrease your customer concentration and increase your amount of direct shipper relationships, that's going to go bode well for you.
0: All right, passing it over to number 11 here, Spencer. All right. Limited consideration of tax implications and strategy. So, um, I think we can all agree, taxes no fun. Nobody's a little excited about doing that. I think the reason why companies don't sell is that people make broad assumptions about what are the tax implications going to be from a sale, and as a result of that, they don't fully engage to a process, and that's a major mistake. So, for a glimpse into how we operate, and this is very key, if they haven't done it already, what we're trying to do with our clients is once we have assess the business. We understand how the market's likely gonna respond both in terms of value and deal structure, complexion. We wanna loop in wealth advisors and tax strategists to help us understand what can be done uh, before and after this sale to mitigate unnecessary tax liability. And so what that does is number one, it educates, but number two, it gives confidence for buyers, excuse me, for sellers to confidently respond to proposals as they come in. And so like, so, so what happens in these conversations? Well, you know, business owners um, who built a business who are planning on retirement are very sensitive about net proceeds. They begin to get confidence. Uh, recently conversation, I said, hey, how did it go with the wealth advisor? He said, like, well, I learned about investing in opportunity zones as a way to try to mitigate my tax exposure. I, I learned that I might be able to create some leverage to use very cheap interest loans to pay for tax. I was like, wow, that's great. I'm glad that you had those conversations. Is that helping you get confidence? He's like, yes, I feel very confident that we can get, there's a lot of ways we can get a deal done now that I don't have this 50% tax bill that I thought I was going to get, which it wasn't even close to that. So the point is, if you're not having those conversations, it's very difficult to function at a high level to do your best from a negotiating standpoint and to make it to the finish line. So the reason is this, like, so like, just do your homework, align yourself with the right advisors. It doesn't mean that you have to act on that inv- that information, but just getting the information is, is, is half the battle just to get to effectively navigate through the process, which is very complex. So that's reason number 11. Reason number 12, it's not a fun topic, but unfortunately it's very real, lawsuit or a fatal accident. Now this is the world we live in guys. Every day that you got trucks on the road, this is a possibility. So my encouragement to you is that as a business owner, you know, you know when you're done, you know when it's time to pass the torch to select a trustee to move the company legacy into the future. The reason why businesses to get sold is when people know that that's true and they just don't put action around it. And as a result of that fatigue sets in, operations get sloppy and they start making mistakes, but particularly around safety. And that's where you start having these fatal accidents that have irreversible consequences, both in terms of your ability to control the timing of an exit, but also just the, the economics of it. You know, there, There's just some lingering exposure and liability that once you've had a fatal accident, that people don't wanna to touch it for a while. And if they do want to touch it only under certain economic conditions will they buy it. And so that's the thing when, you know, you know, that's when you have to pull the trigger and get out quickly. Um, so that that risk is uh, no longer on the table that could affect your ability to exit when you want to. That being said, we'll go, uh, go ahead and jump to, to, to number 13, NF attorneys. Yeah, we, we're lucky to have a lot of great industry attorneys that know our industry that have been around MA, And I'll tell you some names here in a second, but it's very easy when we get to the point, we've agreed to the terms, maybe we're at LOI or even the purchase agreement. And we we need legal professionals to paper this document to protect, protect in, uh, any potential unnecessary legal exposure. You need someone who specializes in doing this. And where deals die is when you bring amateurs or people that don't specialize either in MA or in transportation or both. And I could tell you countless stories, un- un- unfortunately, about you know, friends that are attorneys that, that run up $80,000 worth of fees, don't get a deal done, potentially lose a deal. This is not a good practice. And so um, there's lots of folks that we interact with regularly, whether it be Scatter, Scatter Law, Scopilitas Law Firm, Benish Law Firm, uh, just to name a few that are tremendous resources. We had a, a large deal that we were working on here recently, uh, over $100 million. And our client felt very strongly about a very reputable law firm that he'd done a lot of work with over 20 years. And we said, that's fine, but we would still encourage you to have a conversation with an, someone who understands this industry. They had a 30 minute call and just through the questions that the industry specialist was asking, immediately they agreed to hire his firm. We didn't say anything. We said, they said, just have a conversation, but it was so clear that they understood the nuances of getting that deal done. They, they believe like the, the probability of us closing this deal, this, this triple basically just after this conversation. So that's one of the main reasons why deals don't get done, but it's also the easiest thing that you can correct to make sure that you put some insurance around a deal and get to the closing table. So number 14, a health crisis. You know, Davis, we've seen some things, haven't we? Unfortunately, the nature of what we do and, you know, you know, a lot of people that we are helping exit the trucking logistics space, they're 50 to 75 years old. I mean, that's the common profile. And with that, you, you add the unbelievable stress that this industry puts on business owners and how that affects their health. Unfortunately, we see this play a role much more often than we'd like. And so the main takeaway of this is, I'm not gonna dwell on this, but it's very difficult to successfully maximize a sale behind a health crisis or during a health crisis. It's just because unfortunately, I mean, business is business. There's vulnerability there the buyers know that there's limited leverage from the seller standpoint, and that's just not a place to be in. I mean, so if you kind of reverse engineer that, you would prefer to sell when your business is at its highest, your health is uh, at its best, and and you have the physical stamina to add a sale process on top of what's already a demanding job day to day. Uh, One of my favorite uh, examples of this, we had a client and he committed before he sold his business, he lost 40 pounds. He said, if I'm going to go through this, I got I to get in peak condition. And towards the end of the process, uh, we went to a final all-hands negotiation. And we, we had stayed at, at the same hotel in, in a different city. And I got up to go work out in the morning. And I got there at the gym. It was 530. And my client, who was 60 years old, was just crushing it in the gym. I said, we're going to win today. We're going to win <laughs> this negotiation today. And I think that's the idea. And as, as far as like that's how you win. The reason why deals don't get done is if when you run out of gas too soon. So you need to exit while your stamina and your endurance, your health is on top. So you have maximum leverage and you're never forced to do anything that you don't want to do. That's my encouragement. All right, sir, bring it home for us on number 15 and 16.
1: Right, upside down balance sheets. And we have a great example of how this has negatively impacted uh, someone recently that We've run across uh, they're about about fifty million dollars in revenue and great business, but uh, you know the, the owner actually recently replaced a significant amount of equipment, like completely overhauled his fleet, and in doing so, uh, took on a significant amount of debt. And so what that what that did is just it really made. A, a transaction tough one. The valuation of the company didn't drastically increase. Uh, the, the earnings stayed relatively flat initially, but after a couple of months, a couple of issues came up that made some distractions to the business, EBITDA dipped. And so by the time we got to, he got to us, you know, what was previously $10 million in EBITDA was about seven. And as a result of that $3 million EBITDA dip, plus the pretty excessive amount of, of new debt on the business, it just made a, an exit pretty tough for him in order to satisfy what he needed to, to kind of step into the next season of life. So don't hear us say, again, based on the, the previous conversations that you, you shouldn't replace your, your fleets, that you shouldn't take on debt to sustain a business. It, timing matters though. If, if you're looking at an exit in the next you know, handful of years, then you have to also weigh the implications of what taking on that debt right now is gonna to do to your ability to accomplish what you want at the exit table in whenever that is. And also the, the risk of taking on the debt is not solely in the debt itself, but what are the implications of having that debt and then one of these other issues arising and and, and what sort of position that, that puts you in. And so again, um, you know, to the extent that you can keep your balance sheet clean that you can uh, keep yourself in, in a, in as much of a low debt situation as possible. That's reasonable to continue to operate the business. That's gonna give you more options in, in terms of how you can structure a deal, how you can actually accomplish what you need to uh, through a transaction to uh, capitalize on the uh, upside there. Moving to number 16 in our final-ish reason here, external factors. Uh, so the best buyers, you know, too busy absorbing another deal, market crash, correction, or interest rate spikes. Obviously, there's things, a lot of things that you can tr- control within the day to day operations of your business, but there's a lot of things going on in this world that none of us can actually, you know, do to meaningfully alter on a day to day basis. So as you're as you're looking at, you know, right now is, is now a great time to sell. Yes. Does that mean that it's always going to be a great time to sell? No. Uh, and so making sure that you're taking into account as you build the business, if, if you're looking to maybe have an exit five years from now, what could happen in the next five years, either from the market or from a, a personal kind of unforeseeable circumstance that could influence your ability to sell? This industry has a um, an aging owner demographic. And so as a result of that, there's going to be continued MA action in the space uh, for the foreseeable future, whether the market moves up and down. Uh, but what that's going to do is as there's more buyers in the market, or continues to be more buyers, or sellers in the market, I'm sorry, as there continues to be more sellers in the market, you're going to need to find ways to differentiate yourself as we've discussed previously, and that are going to actually give a buyer confidence, whether the market is up, whether the market is down, whether uh, we're in a recession or whether we're not, there's simple practices that you can do to actually give yourself the best chance there. But if some of those things are not in place and there is a, a large macro shift or something that uh, takes place outside of your operation that affects you at large, then that could be a significant factor for why you don't sell. Is there there a story you mentioned earlier there about a labor lawsuit? that was kind of external on the buyer front that kind of influenced that? Do you you want to give some color there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think this is just part of the deal is that the the recognition that you can do all the right things, have the right buyer, have even the right valuation agreed to, but there's certain things that you can't control. For instance, if the buyer absorbs another acquisition or if they have a lawsuit, which takes their ability to engage off the table for a year or two. Like if you have a health issue or whatever the deal is, you, you have only one of two choices. You can either wait if you have the health to do that and if your business is healthy enough to do that or you have to make material deal concessions that you didn't want to do and shouldn't have to do. So I think that just when you're mindful about this uh, is that it rarely works out. I mean, I've almost never heard, and Davis, I mean, you've, you've been doing this a bit too, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, I've sold too soon. And I think that's the issue is because usually, uh, you know, we had a client that came to the table. He had the buyer, he knew the buyer that he wanted to do. We got the the terms agreed to. The the situation I just described took place. He was only 52 years old, the business doing fine. He just pressed pause for two years. And then we came back, he conceded nothing, got all cash offer, and that was it. But, like, you know, if he's 67 and he's in that position, his, his action is different at that point. And so I, I think that that that's the takeaway as far as like, you kind of have to build in time around that. And then we'll have a resource here in a minute that will show you that I think that will provide some color, uh, in terms of how to kind of map that out on your own.
1: Yeah. I guess before we jump in these extended resources, I'll give a couple of, uh, of, of bonus reasons right here. I gave uh, number 17 to our friend, Ryan Scriber, uh, already this week, um, on, you know, you didn't work with Ryan because he, hype this up on LinkedIn. So uh, that's shameless. Uh, to number 18, though, really, um, just a, a quick you know, shout out to to IANA. Uh, we, we get to work with a lot of organizations um, and a lot of associations. And if, if you're not a part of you know their organization, uh, I, I would definitely recommend you do. There, there's so much that can be gained just from plugging into the network associated with the uh, association, but also the resources, uh, the educational opportunities uh, that can actually help you kind of stay ahead of a lot of these uh, potential pain points and uh, continue to keep your, your, yourself in a position to to grow your business in a way that is going to demand uh, a greater value down the road. And IANA does a great job of, of really investing in their, in their membership. And so they didn't ask us to do that. I just, we think highly of them and we wanted to give Number 18 might just be that you didn't join ANA soon enough. So um, that could be it. Spencer, you want to finish this off here with some of these uh, extended resources?
0: Yeah. So we've got an owner guide, when to start a sale process, which basically maps out every stage of the sale process and the things that you can't control that could create delay. It's not to create fear, it's to create confidence that you'll understand and be able to kind of take more ownership over what you want your exit to look like. And then there's the kind of ex- expanded version of the white paper of 16 reasons why your trucking business won't sell. So we hope this that provides you the ability to kind of come away from here, along with the uh, the guide for responding to unsolicited offers, three separate white papers uh, built within this uh, this deck that we think that you can go put some action around immediately. So. From a conclusion standpoint, it's very simple. Like if, if you want to exit on your terms, on your timetable, there's no excuses. You have to focus on what you can control and you have to educate yourself on the factors that you can't and be very mindful of those things. And if you do those guys, the results are this, you're going to have a much better experience whenever that is. And it's typically going to be a higher business value, higher concentration of cash, more um influence over selecting the right trustee to take your business in the future. And that's what we want for you.